Do you love our apartment, Mia? Yeah. What do you love most about our apartment? My bedroom. Your bedroom? <laughs> what is it about your bedroom that you love the most? It's creative. It's creative. Has Eleanor seen your bedroom? No. I don't think so. You're going to show Eleanor your bedroom and Belle going to show Eleanor. When I walk through this Brooklyn apartment, on a floor so high that you can see the Statue of Liberty out the window, I'm like, this is such a nice place. The person leading me through it is Julie. She's in her early 40s. Her hair is in a cool pixie cut. She's got thick glasses on, comfortable sweat clothes, no shoes. One thing I really like about her is how good-natured she is, especially when she's telling her kids what to do. That was a fast tour. We're not done. We're not done. That's Mia, her older daughter. She's eight. She chose the wallpaper. Purple and blue butterflies. I think it's a bit garish and ugly, but she loves it. <laughs> um, and then that's her name inscribed. And Mia Singh. Singh is her middle name. And that's my Chinese name. That's what my family calls me. Singh. And Isabel's is Yip, so it's much more boring. <laughs> Isabel's her younger daughter. She's six. We're passing through the laundry room, the bathroom, the kitchen. And then I walk into Julie's master bedroom. And you see the, um, the the wallpaper, which is on one wall only. It's an accent wall. It's gold oak patterned, and it was expensive, but I splurged. This room I designed, planning to die here. Because I said, you know what? If people are going to come visit me as I'm dying, I want to have a nice background. <laughs> <laughs> And six weeks after that apartment tour, Julia Williams did die of colon cancer. She was 42. But this show isn't about the fact that Julie died. It's about how she prepared for that moment. So, okay. So, um, yeah, I was coming from a... a I was at radiation this morning and I was coming Towards the end of her life, Julie wanted to record everything. So here she is talking to a friend of hers a few months before she died. My thoughts are going getting stranger, I think. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about, um, like, I, I couldn't watch myself be born, but I can watch myself die. When we're born, you know, we come into this life and we don't have the consciousness, you know, to be aware of the miracles that's occurring and the, the, the fetus developing. And, and I feel like I'm watching my body die. And in the summer, I was very sad about this. You know, all the things I can't do, how it's just struggling to go to even Target, like it's exhausting, this and that. I mean, that was really hard to accept, you know. And now I feel like I have to, I've come to accept the decline. And now I'm sort of watching it happen as an observer, like, oh, <laughs> I'm very interested to see how it unfolds. There's this intellectual curiosity about it, but there's also this kind of appreciation and reverence for kind of the unwinding of the miracle, so to speak. And I'm like trying to really embrace that experience and like understand it, like what physically is happening to me. 
It's kind of nuts. This show is part of Julie's plan, to witness the unwinding of her life. And she invited a producer to be with her as she made sense of her death. I'm Eleanor Kagan. I'm that producer. And this is episode one, The End. As Julie was dying, she wanted to document as much of it as possible. The emotional experience, trips to the hospital for treatment, and eventually sitting in that bedroom, surrounded by her family. Cancer, the thought of it never crossed my mind. I never even, I just, I just didn't. I wish I could say it did, but it didn't. This is Julie's husband, Josh. It was 2013. They were in L.A. for a family wedding. Julie starts experiencing intense stomach pain. At first, she assumes it's some kind of virus, maybe a bad yogurt, And eventually, in the middle of the night, she goes to the ER. They rush her in for tests. And hours later, the doctor comes out to talk to Josh. He's like, we've been trying to do a colonoscopy. And I said, trying to do a colonoscopy. And he's he's like, yes, but we couldn't get the scope through. There's a blockage. And I said, you know, is it cancer? And he just looks at me. And he had this kind of like compassionate look in his eyes. He looks at me and he says, it's suspicious. I'll never forget that. It's suspicious. So Josh spends every night in Julie's hospital room. He's cramped in a chair, face illuminated by the light of his iPad. He's a tax lawyer, so he spends time doing the one thing that comforts him the most. Research, research, research. Like four in the morning, so five in the morning. Crunching numbers. She has stage four cancer, and and I've looked it up, and there's an 8% survival rate. Some people were living five years, even 10 years, and perhaps, you know, forever. People would say, she's young, she's healthy. So I thought maybe she has 15 or 20%. And I mapped out a plan for Julie to live long-term, and I had a plan. She had 12 cancerous lymph nodes, and that was the biggest problem. She has long odds. I knew that. I was looking for a effectively conditional probability. Chart a course. Really, the 8% kept clanging in my head, but I was trying to shut that out. Later on, Julie would write, As much as Josh loves me, He cannot comprehend a fundamental truth about me simply because he hasn't lived my life. He doesn't understand that my very existence on this planet is evidence of how little numbers matter to me. Numbers mean squat. Numbers might mean something to Josh, but Julie, that 8% survival rate, basically means nothing. The odds have been stacked against her her entire life. Julie was born blind. In 1976, in South Vietnam, right after the end of the war, her family escaped the country on a rickety fishing boat and eventually wound up in California. Because she's blind, her family completely underestimates what she's capable of. They tell her she'll never get married, get a good job, be able to live independently. But Julie does all of that, and way more. Then, at age 37, Julie is diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. The odds of that happening are less than 1%. So Julie doesn't believe in odds. But she also doesn't believe in false hope. So while Josh is looking for comfort in numbers, Julie's looking for something else. After a diagnosis, you start going on the internet and trying to find information. And, you know, you want to find people like you. 
uh, and you want to get a sense of your prognosis and other people's experiences and maybe, you know, find some hope in other people's stories. I also was looking for people to tell me about emotionally what it was like. And all I was getting from various forums and blogs was sort of this sort of generic warrior type of mentality. Like, you, you, gotta, you gotta fight it, you gotta be positive. That drove me crazy. You gotta be positive and this is a challenge that you, know, you, can, you can beat it. I wanted the truth. I wanted the darkness. I wanted to understand the grief and the sadness. And uh, it wasn't out there. I remember sitting there with Julie and our going on to these various blogs. And she was like, she, I remember her saying to me in this rented house in the Outer Banks in front of my parents and everything, look at this bullshit. God, it's like, it's pernicious, man. It's, 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 it's lying to yourself. If you have stage four cancer, you're in big trouble, no matter what, right? We all know that. You might get lucky. I'm struggling to accept that very thing right now, <laughs> still. Julie was in trouble. These people were in trouble and they're all dead. So she starts her own blog. Hate, October 8th, 2016. I used to not hate people, but now I hate people. Can you guess who I hate the most? I wanted to express the truth, and I found that there was a real absence of truth out there about living with this disease and about what it's like to face death. But the people who I hate above all others, the mothers who were diagnosed with stage four cancer and who somehow were cured, are those women's children somehow more deserving of a mother than mine? So when I started writing, I said, you know, I know this is really depressing and I know this is really dark, but I swore that I would always be honest. And um, I didn't think anybody would read. <laughs> you know, I, I, thought, I thought, this is too depressing. People don't want to ruin their day. But I was shocked at how many people gravitated towards my writing. Um, because it was so honest, and he said all these things that people were afraid to say or they couldn't say, and it validated their emotions, and it made them feel not so alone. And I think I felt not so alone. There's a lot of anger, and there's a lot of jealousy, there's a lot of bitterness, there's a lot of fear um, when you live with this diagnosis. And once I started writing about it, it would stay, it would stay in my head for a while and in my heart for a while. But then when I was ready to write and I wrote it, it was like I let it go. What I have written above is perhaps the darkest of anything I have ever written, for I'm writing about rage, hatred, and violence. I truly believe that such feelings are a universal part of our human experience. Julie's writing really resonated with people who were living with cancer. And they left lots of comments, like, you're reading my mind, and denial is my personal strong suit. Thankfully, you're different. One of the people who discovered Julie's blog was Mark Warren, a longtime magazine editor. She began as a warrior. She was going to fight this with everything she had, and she meant it. But by the time I met Julie, she was kind of a funny fatalist instead. At the time, Mark was caring for a friend who was also dying of colon cancer. The two of them would read Julie's blog together. And after that friend died, Mark reached out to Julie. He thought maybe she'd understand what he was going through. And Julie thought the same about him. 
So this is kind of this kind of strange mutuality. We met and we became fast friends because you, you, there's no time to waste. And the first thing I said to Julie when I met her was, um, Julie, I'm sorry, I, I can't do anything for you. And she said, I don't want you to do anything for me. <laughs> she said, just, just be my friend. I said, oh, okay, that's, I can do that. And after a couple of years, Julie asked Mark to help her with something. She uh, was dying by then, and she knew it and was uh, resolving everything she needed to resolve. And she said one day, she said, um, do you think there's a book in what I've written? And I, I said, it's brilliant, Julie. I think it could help a lot of people. And she said, will you promise me that um, you'll help Josh try to find a publisher for it after I die? And I said, I promise I'll try. So, death, July 1st, 2017. I was daddy's little girl, his favorite, his precious one, his gold nugget. He would tell anyone and everyone exactly Mark was just that. starting a new career in publishing, so he helped Julie get a book deal and became her editor. I've spent three years planning for my death. I have many contingency plans, many lists in my head, many things to write down, many instructions to issue. If I could, I would handpick Josh's second wife, but unfortunately, I haven't gotten around to establishing that contingency plan yet. So is that when you started recording your conversations? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I um, didn't begin to record them consciously with uh, the knowledge that I would be putting together a book and that I would need her consultation and she wouldn't be there. I don't know why I did it. It was one day I said, do you mind if I tape, your, tape our conversation? And she said, no, no. It became pointed toward a book. It became, I need this. I need to ask you questions because I'm going to look around and, say, and want to say, Julie, what do you think? The room um, where Julie and I talked, we would talk in the same room every time. Um, and we, it's, it's, we'd kind of go in and close the door. Um, I would get there early afternoon um, to give us, uh, you know, a couple hours uh, to talk uh, reasonably uninterrupted before the girls came home from school. Um, and sometimes, you know, they would come in and, and we would play. I'll put it, I'll put it in there. Okay. <laughs> um, and this room where we had all these conversations is the same room where Julie died. Honey, Mark is here. <laughs> The publisher man is back. That's <laughs> how I think of myself. I want you to capture whatever that is beautiful and ugly about it all at the same time. Good, we agree. Yeah. I think you and I, we agree on what makes for good writing. I've listened to hours of their conversations. Everything Julie's thinking about her life, about what it feels like to die, even when she's working through some really complex emotions, she's still totally practical. I've spent four years thinking about how I want to die. I know that. You know, I've spent, I, I want to die on my terms. I want to die not in the hospital. I don't want to be that, that delusional cancer patient who is having his lungs drained on yeah. a Wednesday and saying, oh, I'm going to go to such and such cancer center and talk about trials a week in a week. And he's dead, you know, five days later. Right. You know, I'm not that person. And I want to bring in hospice early. 
I want them to be able to talk to the kids, for the hospice people to get to know my family. I want to die at my bed, you know, and I want to be surrounded by family and friends. I want this to be a place, you know, that's full of laughter, you know, people talking about, you know, memories of me. And the reason why I want that, not just for myself, because I, I love, I've always loved noise. You know, I grew up in a big family, and, mm-hmm. I, and that's kind of how I want to go out. But I want my children to understand, to not be afraid of death. The last year or so of Julie's life was kind of this weird paradox. On one hand, she's trying to give up this idea of fighting and accept her death as it comes to her. But on the other hand, she's trying to finish this book. She wants to stay out of pain and keep her mind sharp. And she's trying to figure out how to do that. I made it clear, I said, whatever it takes to preserve my ability to write. Yeah. That's what we need to do. Whatever that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so now there's a, sort of a, a goal. Yeah. So I want to be around for as long as I can to see what magic you will do. Oh, <laughs> and you've already done the magic, oh. Julie. That desire to be present and trying to prepare is also just exhausting. So, like, I had a class breakfast at the girls' school yesterday, and I was like, do I have to go? <laughs> do I have to go? And my daughter's like, yes, mommy, you have to go. And I'm just like, oh. You know, and you just, like, don't want to disappoint them, even though you know it's some stupid class breakfast that, like, nobody cares about. You know, you feel like as a mother, you have all this responsibility, like you don't want to shirk what you're supposed to do and you feel like you have to do it. And so, like I got up, I like got them ready for, you know, and I'm like dying. <clears throat> and I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm technically dying, but it's like, this is the beginning. And I like, I told my oncologist on Friday who I love, I think she's a really compassionate doctor, you know, even though she's younger than I am. But I said to her, I said, I can't wait for the day when I can climb into bed and know that I'd never have to come out. Because, you know, hospice can come in whenever I decide I want hospice, they'll come in and they'll take care of everything, you know. And it's like you're so tired, you just want to, like, climb into bed and just rest, you know? You just want to, like, it's enough, it's enough. Five years of this is enough. You hear this play out again and again in Julie's conversations with Mark, She's ready for death. She's afraid of death. She wishes for more time. She's accepting the inevitable. It's that competitive person in me. Yeah. You know, because I'm so competitive at heart. That's why I've gotten so far in life, because I'm so competitive. And, And that competitor in me feels like I'm losing by dying at this age. I feel like I'm losing. Another classmate of mine from Harvard died last week. He mm. said he had esophageal cancer, and it took him in a year. Wow. And my friend asked me, "How do you?" Because he was this brilliant, you know, Harvard Law School, handsome guy, two kids, beautiful wife. She asked me, "How do you feel about that?" And I said, "Every time somebody like me dies." I feel like I, they're giving me permission to die, too. 
he's not a loser, I don't view him as a loser, then I'm not a loser either. <laughs> you know? See, that, that's the last thing that would ever occur to me, that, that, you, would, that you would need to feel. Somehow. Oh, I do feel like a loser sometimes, giving up. Because you can always try more stuff. Yeah, but spending the last, I'm not a warrior model, but you're spending <laughs> the last minutes trying to get more minutes without regard to the quality of those minutes. Mm -hmm. I know, I know. I know all the arguments, but I, I just, I'm not the warrior, like, I'm not the warrior. And I, I think I'm okay with that. Um, it was nice talking. Yeah. I should probably get out of your hair. Yeah, I gotta go to violin. Oh, you do? Mm -hmm. What time? Oh my God, it's almost four o'clock. Okay, I'm gonna turn this off. So the book and the blog and this podcast, they're all part of Julie's mission. Not to live as long as possible, but to die as honestly as possible. Sometimes when you practice your instruments, I close my eyes so I can hear better. I'm the only person who knows how to tune in this house, which is sad. And when I do, I am often overcome with this absolute knowing that whenever you play, the violin or the piano, when you play it with passion and commitment, the music with its special power will beckon me and I will be there. Julie's just shown me her bedroom, the one with the beautiful gold wallpaper. And now I'm sitting in the music room. Julie says it's time for a performance. That's Mia on the violin, and Isabel, Belle for short, plays piano. And as an older sister myself, her interaction with Mia sounds very familiar. Is there a violin-piano duet? Nobody else should tell your child that you're dying except you. I know my kids better than anybody else. Like, I know how they're gonna react to stuff. So I want to be in control. Okay. And maybe that's like me being a control freak, you know. But whatever, I'm a control freak. <coughs> but I think it's overall a a good thing. And I think part of the entire time that I'm sitting here asking Julie all these questions about her death. Mia and Isabel are just, like, in the background, playing, totally unfazed by what we're talking about. They don't recall time when I wasn't sick. Because when I was diagnosed, Mia was three and Belle was not even two. She was about to turn two. When I was upset about scans and stuff one time, you know, when she was four, and I was, like, crying and, you know, on the couch and stuff. Oh, Mia has a question for you. Hold on a second. I, and Belle said, what's wrong? And I said, mommy's getting sicker and sicker. And she like paused for a second. And then she's like, but you're not gone yet, mommy. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, that's it. Well, good. That one was, uh, what's it say, baby? Cerato, number two, and G major. <laughs> this apartment is the single, like my, the largest physical gift I could give them. A place where they could grow up into, you know, and when I built everything, you know, I thought about the adjustable nature of the shelves, you know, like as they grow, like, is it adjustable, you know? Um, so you think about all that stuff. I lie in their beds at night, you know, and I'll think about all the nights that they'll sleep on this bed and I'll think about, you know, how I won't be here, but I try to like leave my presence, you know, everywhere in my presence, like mommy's here, you know? All these choices I made for them, all the decisions I made about what to put, you know, what to hang, it was for them so that <coughs> they knew that their mother was looking out for them and, you know, providing a, a beautiful place for them to grow up in. So it was, that was my greatest gift, tangible gift. And it's, it was an act of love. In the time she has left, Julie is reckoning with something. On the next episode, she learns a secret, a big one, about something that happened to her when she was a baby and that she's trying to come to terms with before she dies. It was top of mind for her from the moment she found out to the moment she died. She's like, I have something to tell you that I've been meaning to tell you for a long time. Everything isn't as they seem. What the fuck are you talking about, man? How dare, How could you tell somebody that kind of stuff? It was after midnight, and she told me to turn off the tape recorder. What I'm about to tell you cannot go on the tape. That's next time. This show is hosted and produced by me, Eleanor Kagan. Our producers are Jess Hackle and Megan Tan. Joel Lovell is our editor. The executive producers at Pineapple Street Media are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Special thanks to Henry Malofsky for the conversations he had with Julie early on in this project, and to Leela Day for her help shaping episodes towards the end. Our music was composed by Glasser, with sound design and mixing by Hannes Brown. Julie's memoir, The Unwinding of the Miracle, is published by Random House and available now on Apple Books. Get it at apple.co slash Julie Yip. Finally, thanks to the Yip family, the Williams family, Mark Warren, Andy Ward, and Lee Marchant. And Julie, if you're listening, thanks for sharing your story.